Um, so I think that's very true when it comes to the last name Ice. So we've got to be careful what we do, not only before the Lord, but with people in general. Well, I invite you to take your Bibles and turn to the book of Revelation. That's where we're going to start here, Revelation chapter 20. As Jeff mentioned, the topic of this last session is the significance of the millennium, or you could put it this way, why do we have Revelation chapter 20, verses 1 through 10 in our Bible? Or you could even think about it this way, why do we have this doctrine called the millennial reign of Christ? My goal this morning is to answer that question for you by presenting really a more of a a biblical and theological reasons why there's a thousand year reign of Jesus Christ, our wonderful Messiah in the scriptures. So I'm going to work through some of Revelation chapter 20, but I'm not just going to exposit it verse by verse. We're going to be turning in our Bibles to different places. So I encourage you to grab that handout and follow along as we do that. But to kind of set the stage here, let's read Revelation chapter 20, verses 1 through 10. The Apostle John writes, Then I saw an angel coming down from heaven, having the key of the abyss and a great chain in his hand. And he laid hold of the dragon, the serpent of old, who is the devil and Satan, and bound him for a thousand years. And he threw him into the abyss, and he shut it and sealed it over him, so that he would not deceive the nations any longer, until the thousand years were finished. After these things, he must be released for a short time. Then I saw thrones, and they sat on them, and judgment was given to them. And I saw the souls of those who had been beheaded because of their witness of Jesus and because of the word of God, and who had also had not worshipped the beast or his image, and had not received the mark on their forehead and on their hand. And they came to life and reigned with Christ for a thousand years. The rest of the dead did not come to life until the thousand years were finished. This is the first resurrection. Blessed and holy is the one who has part in the first resurrection over the second death has no authority, but they will be priests of God and of Christ and will reign with him for a thousand years. And when the thousand years were finished, Satan will be released from his prison and will come out to deceive the nations which are in the four corners of the earth, Gog and Magog, to gather them together for the war. The number of them is like the sand of the seashore. And they came up on the broad plain of the earth and surrounded the camp of the saints in the beloved city. And fire came down from heaven and devoured them. And the devil who deceived them was thrown into the lake of fire and brimstone where the beast and the false prophet are also. And they were tormented day and night forever and ever. Now when you come to the book of Revelation... We have a lot of chronology questions, and we have a lot of chronology throughout the book of Revelation. Backing up for a minute from chapter 20 and chapter 16, as we finish up the book, you've got the Battle of Armageddon at the end of the tribulation there. Then we move into the second coming of Christ. And then from there, we move into the Millennial Kingdom, that passage I just read for you. After that is the the great white throne judgment. Then there's the destruction of the present earth. And the present heavens, and then there's the establishment of the eternal state in the last two chapters of the book. And a question that's often raised to me, and it's been raised by many people over the years, is why not just skip the thousand year reign of Christ? Or why not just skip the kingdom? Why doesn't Christ just come back at the second coming, 
settle everything, and then just take us to heaven, and we start in the new heavens and new earth. Has anybody ever wondered that as you thought through God's plan for history? And that really is a, a natural question. That's a natural thing to think through. And what I want to do this morning is I want you to think through this biblically and to realize if we don't have those 10 verses in our Bible, Revelation chapter 20, verses 1 through 10, we actually would do a lot of damage to the Word of God because they're crucial to really tying God's storyline together. I always think of Revelation chapter 20, verses 1 through 10, it would be like creating a really strong rope. And a great rope has many strands to it, right? It's tightly bound. And what do they do at the end of that rope? They burn it, right? And it holds everything together. And that's how Revelation chapter 20, verses 1 through 10, functions as it relates to the storyline of the Bible. So what we're going to do this morning is we're going to look at seven reasons why these verses are recorded in scriptures. I'm going to give you seven reasons why the millennial kingdom is really necessary. The first reason, and it's really the most obvious reason, people often sadly are embarrassed of this, and that's why I'm emphasizing it, but the first reason is the, the scripture, the book of Revelation itself, emphasizes a thousand-year reign of the Messiah. The first reason why the millennium is necessary is because God, he directs and he calls our attention to it and he, to its length. You know, it's interesting when you read Revelation 20, you see a, a reference to a phrase, a thousand years, and And those verses that are read for you, it occurs six times there in ten verses. And so when you see that reference to a thousand years over and over again in such a short period of time, what John is doing is he's calling our attention to that, right? He's calling our attention to a specific time period um, from what came before and what follows after that. So you can think about it this way. That number 1,000 helps mark out this time period. And that number is also very, you could think of it this way, very literal. And when you begin to talk this way, when you begin to mention the fact that a thousand years actually means a thousand years, or if you actually tell someone you actually believe it really means a thousand years, they can be very upset, right? Maybe if they're not upset, they can say, well, you shouldn't be so um, dogmatic because, after all, the book of Revelation is a very symbolic book, right? How do you know that a thousand means a thousand Let me just read you one sample of one interpreter, one commentary. You can find this in many commentaries. He says, The proper understanding of the thousand-year time frame in Revelation 20 is that it is a representative of a long, glorious era and is not limited to a literal 365,000 days. This figure represents a perfect cube of 10, which is the number of quantitative perfection. That's actually very, not necessarily that view, but that type of interpretation is a very common thing that you see in the book of Revelation. But the fact of the matter is that for valid, we have very valid reasons for taking the number 1,000 literally. Let me just give you a, a few this morning. I can give you a lot more than this, but I'm just going to highlight a few. For one thing, John really knows how to use indefinite concepts. One thing that's just helpful, and you, you get this in everyday language with people, you may know your, your father, your mother. You may know your siblings. And when they want to be extremely literal, you know how they communicate, right? And when they want to maybe joke around or make a metaphor or an analogy, they kind of use different type of language. Well, the same thing is true when we have a, a biblical writer. You can often observe just reading the text when the person does certain things in the way they write that makes them literal. 
and other times when they want to use just a, a broad concept. Let me kind of show you what I mean. John in Revelation 20 and in verse 3 says, Satan is bound for a what? Short time. Look at what it says, short time there. Now, if John wanted to say the millennium will last for a, a long time, he could have said that it would have been very easy for him to do so. He could have been very specific, but John doesn't do that. Instead, he gives us a very specific number there. It's also interesting to note that when you have a Greek, uh, in the Greek there, a number with the word years, every single time you find that that combination throughout the New Testament, it always refers to a literal time period. And I know many people um, do understand this in Genesis, but when it gets to the book of Revelation, they often operate differently. For example, in Genesis, whenever you have the Hebrew word day, and it's used with a number, first day, second day, third day, it's used literally throughout the Old Testament, every time. You see the same thing in the New Testament as well. And by the way, if the number 1,000 here is not literal, that has ramifications. What do you do with all the other numbers in the book of Revelation? There are a lot of numbers. There's two witnesses, 7,000 people, four angels, seven angels, 144,000 Jews, 24 elders, 42 months, 1,260 days. Suddenly, you've got to figure out how to know when it should be taken literally and when it should be taken figuratively or symbolically, right? It begins to cast suspicion on how you read it. So while Revelation is a symbolic book, not everything in the book is a symbol. Generally, when you read the book and when, you, when the author wants us to take something symbolically, he tells us, he tells us, for example, what it would be like. Look at Revelation chapter 17, for example. We don't take that literally. And what I mean is the, the woman there, we don't take literally. We know she's a symbolic of something because in the last verse of this chapter it tells us that the woman is a what? She's the city. So there's the clue. But when you read in Revelation 20 and you see the number 1000 listed over and over again, there's nothing in the text telling us it's anything but a literal number. What's qualifying the number 1000 is the word years. And so the natural way to take it is a reference to years, just like other things in the book of Revelation when it's defined for us. So why is Revelation chapter 21 through 10 in the scriptures? Why is the millennial kingdom significant? The first reason is because the scripture emphasizes that our Savior, our Messiah, will reign here for 1,000 years upon this earth. It's what's emphasized. A second reason why the millennium is so significant is that it represents the time period when God's authority over the world is going to be vindicated. Now, as you think about the Bible as a whole and you go back to the beginning of Scripture, I think most of us know that in Genesis chapter 3, the fall of man happens, right? That's when sin enters humanity. And what's going on there is that Satan challenge is challenging God's right to rule the world. And in that battle, Satan won that particular battle. So the question becomes from that point on, who becomes the ruler of this world, at least for a time period? And the correct answer, biblically speaking, is, is Satan. 
From Genesis 3 on, he's called the the God of this age, the the prince of the power of the air. Satan challenges God's authority and rule in the garden, and he wins that battle. Let me just kind of explain what I mean was going on here. In chapters 1 of Genesis, chapters 1 and 2, we've got the creation story, right? Genesis chapter 1, you've got an overview of creation. Then in chapter 2, it gives you a more detailed account of what happened on the sixth day with the creation of man. And in this overview of creation, it states in chapter 1, verses 26 through 28 of Genesis, it gives the purpose of man. What is Adam's role? And Adam was to be mankind's representative. And his role on this planet was to rule over the earth. He's given a mandate on behalf of God. Listen to what Moses writes. He says in Genesis chapter 1, verse 26, Then God said, Let us make man in our image according to our likeness. Notice the the language here. So they will have dominion over what? Over the fish of the sea, over the birds of the sky, and over the cattle, and over all the earth, and every other creeping thing that creeps on the earth. And God created man in his own image, and in the image of God, he created him, male and female. He created them. God blessed them, and God said to them, Be fruitful and multiply. Fill the earth, and here's the language, subdue it, and have dominion, again, over the fish of the sea, over the birds of the sky, and over every living thing that creeps on the earth. So the the picture is that God, before the fall, creates Adam. He creates Eve there on the sixth day. And what God does is he puts them in the garden, and he says, I am setting you up as my image bearers to rule over my creation. That is your mandate. That is your task. That is your purpose. Theologians over the last few hundred years have different terms for this. The, the Puritans called this the, the vice regents. That's how they were to function. Some people call it the role of theocratic administrator. But God was saying, you're going to govern, you're going to rule on this earth on my behalf. And you're going to rule over the creation that I'm putting you over. That was lost in the garden, right? That's what we start to see in Genesis chapter 3. Satan comes in in the form of a serpent. And he comes in and he gets them to rebel against their maker. And it's really interesting when you begin to understand this because there's an intention behind Satan coming as a serpent. Why is it that he doesn't come in the form of a man or some other type um, type of way that we see in other forms of Scripture? Well, it's because he's coming in the form of something that man was to rule over. He's coming in the form of the creature. And man was supposed to rule over the serpent. Man was supposed to rule over the creation. He wasn't supposed to listen to it. And so Satan comes and he completely perverts this office of vice regent, this office of theocratic administrator. This idea that man was to be God's image bearers who ruled over his creation. And from that point, that office has been lost. And one of the main themes in the Bible is how that office is going to be brought back. And on this side of the cross, we know it's going to be brought back through the person of Jesus Christ. So the question is, when is it brought back? Well, the office of theocratic administrator that was lost there in Eden... It's going to be restored during this thousand year reign of Jesus Christ. It's because in the millennial kingdom, you're going to have God the Father ruling, not the the first Adam, 
but ruling the God-man through the last Adam ruling over creation. In other words, Christ is a prophet. He's a priest. He's a king like it was highlighted on our last session. But he's also going to be God's prophet, priest, and king justly ruling over the creation in a way that Adam never could. That's what he was doing. He's restoring that which was lost. And just to show you how this really fits with the rest of the Bible, turn to Matthew chapter 4, just very briefly. I'm not going to spend much time on this, but this really helps us understand what's going on early in in Christ's ministry. And In the Gospel of Matthew, the emphasis is that Jesus is the King. He's the Messiah King. He's the God-man who's come. And when you get to the temptation account in Matthew chapter 4, verses 1 through 11... You begin to understand what's going on even, even more between Satan and Jesus. If you, if you go to the last temptation in verse 8, I used to wonder this as a child. I thought God was on top, not Satan. So how can Satan offer Jesus what he's going to offer him, right? And again, remember, Matthew's saying Jesus is the king, right? So look at what he's offering him. Again, it says the devil, Matthew chapter 4, verse 8, the devil took him to a very high mountain and showed him all the kingdoms of the world and their glory. And he said to him, all these things I will give to you if you fall down and you worship me. Then Jesus said to him, go Satan, for it is written, you shall worship the Lord your God and serve him only. Then the devil left him and behold, angels came and began to minister to him there. Have you ever wondered why Satan could offer, as the the passage says, he could show him all the kingdoms of the world and their glory? It's because of what happens there in the garden. He is, again, like I said, temporarily, not permanently, the God of this age, the the prince and the power of this age. And what he was offering Christ was he was offering him a way to really have the the crown without the cross. He was saying, you can shortcut this, and we know what that's like, right? That's what our our sin nature wants to do oftentimes. We know what's right, and we can find an easier way, and we want to take that path of least resistance, and Christ doesn't do that. He endures the cross, or as Luke says later on in his ministry, he looks towards Jerusalem, and he sets his face to do that. So what you're seeing here is that, starting in Genesis, as you go through the scripture, is this office is being restored. Now, another thing that's interesting as you you think about this, and how he's vindicated here, is that this office has to be restored, not in the heavens, it has to be restored here on planet Earth. And if you're following along, turn to Revelation chapter 5. Revelation chapter 5 and in verse 10. And it's interesting, as you really see, as you go through the great tribulation and as the seals are broken and as the really kind of the title deed of the earth is reclaimed back by the Lamb as he's coming and waging war on the earth, you're seeing that the kingdom of heaven is becoming on the kingdom of this earth. And it says very specifically in verse 10, It says, and you made them to be a kingdom of priests to our God, and they will reign upon where? The earth. So the millennial kingdom, the point I'm bringing that up is Christ's kingdom is not some ethereal or heavenly or really platonic concept. It's a very earthly, it's a very physical thing, just like our lives are today. And when the kingdom is established, what is happening theologically is God is vindicating Upon this earth, the authority that was lost in Genesis chapter 3. He, again, that battle was lost, but he wins the war. Amen? He ultimately, his glory is shown through the cross and really through his crown there. Listen to how Charles Ryrie sums it up. He says, why is the earthly kingdom necessary? 
Did he not receive his inheritance when he was raised and exalted in heaven? Is not his present rule his inheritance? Why does there need to be an earthly kingdom? Because he must be triumphant in the same arena where he was seemingly defeated. His rejection by the rulers of this world was on this earth. His exaltation must be on this earth. And so it shall be when he comes again to rule the world in righteousness, he has waited long for his inheritance. Soon he shall receive it. And that really does sum it up nicely, doesn't it? He's going to show that, yes, Adam failed, but as Scripture calls him, the last Adam will be victorious. Now, a question that's commonly asked is like, I hear what you're saying, but why can't this time period, why can't this time period that you're, you're talking about be in the eternal state? Well, if you really understand and you read the eternal state and you read Revelation chapter 20, what you see is the eternal state is not a time period where God is um, ruling over, um, excuse me, the, the eternal state is a new planet and it's a time period where he's ruling over a new creation. He's not ruling over the present one. And what we see all throughout the prophets in the Old Testament is the Messiah is going to come and rule this very earth. He has to come and vindicate his authority on the earth and through on the throne of David. So that's the second reason of why we have the millennium. It really ties together from Genesis to Revelation there. Moving on to the the third reason. And if you want to turn with me to Isaiah chapter 65. Isaiah chapter 65 verses 17 through 25. I'll give you just a, a moment to get there. But the third reason why the millennial kingdom is necessary is so Old Testament prophecies can be fulfilled. And I could give you lots of Old Testament prophecies. I'm just going to highlight one of the main ones that people turn to when they understand their thousand year earthly reign of Jesus Christ here. Isaiah chapter 65, starting in verse 17, I'm going to read down through verse 25. I'm going to read these quickly. Starting in verse 17, it says, For behold, I'm creating a new heavens and a new earth, and the former things will be remembered or come upon the heart. But be joyful and rejoice forever in what I create. For behold, I create Jerusalem for rejoicing and her people for joy. I will also rejoice in Jerusalem and be joyful in my people. And there will no longer be heard in her the voice of weeping and the voice of crying. No longer will there be an infant who lives but a few days or an old man who does not fulfill his days. For the youth will die at the age of 100. And the one who does not reach the age of 100 will be thought accursed. They will build houses and inhabit them. They will also plant vineyards and eat their fruit. They will not build another and another inhabit. They will not plant and another eat, for as the lifetime of a tree, so will be the days of my people. And my chosen ones will wear out the work of their hands. They will not labor in vain or bear children in terror, for they are the seed of those who are blessed by Yahweh and their offspring with them. And it will be that before they call, I will answer, and while they are still speaking, I will hear. The wolf and the lamb will graze together, and the lion will eat straw like the ox, and the dust with the serpent's food. And they will do no evil, nor act corruptly, and all the holy mountain says, Yahweh. Now when you hear that read, and that's a future prophecy from Isaiah and for us today, is that happening today? Is Jerusalem rejoicing? 
If someone were to die at 100, would you say, man, that was a short life? If you were to go to the St. Louis Zoo, would you find these animals all in the same cages? No, they'd be separated out, right? You wouldn't, and my son, who's three, would try to go into the cages, and he would not have a good experience, right? Um, so obviously, this is not being fulfilled today. And then the other question is, okay, well, can this be fulfilled in the eternal state? Because again, it says in verse 17, many people point out, for behold, I'm creating the new heavens and new earth. I could, at first glance, that makes sense. And they say, that has to refer to that. But that's really the last two chapters of the book of the Bible, again, in Revelation. But if you will notice in verse 20, it says, if someone dies before 100, he'll be thought of a mere youth. So it's clear that death is going to really happen during this time period. So when you take together all the information, it can't be the, um, it can't be the eternal state. It can't be Revelation chapter 21. It can't be Revelation chapter 22. It has to fit in in Revelation chapter 20. I know many people know this, but Revelation 21 verse 4 talks specifically how there will no longer be any death, right? No more tears in that sense. So if this prophecy is being fulfilled um, during that time period, it doesn't seem to work with the eternal state. It has to be fulfilled in the millennial kingdom. And because the millennial kingdom represents a unique period when the curse, as we know it, is curtailed, but it's not repealed, we do notice that there will be some differences in this, in this kingdom. And this is also, by the way, what the people of Israel were looking for at Christ's first coming, right? Bring in the millennial conditions. Bring in the kingdom conditions here. They would read these texts. The problem is they didn't want to repent, did they? They didn't want to first deal with the relationship with God and deal with their situation spiritually. They just wanted the political benefits. But as you think about this, just listen to some of the differences. I have it on your handout there between Revelation chapter 20 and Revelation um, chapters 21 and 22. In the millennium, we see that sin is restrained. In the eternal state, that sin is removed. In the millennium, the curse is restrained. In the eternal state, the curse is removed. In the millennium, death is still an ongoing reality. And again, why is that? Well, because you're going to have some people, believers that survive the tribulation period. Those who will go into... They're not going to go into the eternal kingdom in their, in their mortal bodies. And they're going to, as they go into the kingdom, though, they're going to have children with the bodies like we have today. And as they have kids, yes, their kids are going to live a long time, but their death is going to be a reality. Their children will be, live a long time. It's kind of like a reversal, like it was before the flood. A long lifespan. That's just not true in the eternal state. There's no death. In the millennium, you have mortals and resurrected people living t- together, just like we kind of see with Christ after his resurrection. In the eternal state, we don't see the same. People are in their resurrected bodies. And the millennium destinies remain undecided. You see, you have people, you have mortals who go into the kingdom. They have children. Again, those children will have to make a decision. Are they going to follow Christ who's going to rule from Jerusalem? There still will need to have evangelism during this time period. But when you get to the eternal state, everyone's destiny is sealed. In the millennium, it's more of a renovation of this present earth and in many ways a reversal 
of some of the curses that we have in earlier parts of Scripture. In the eternal state, it's not a recreation, a reformation. It's a total new creation. It's a total new heavens and new earth. I've kind of heard, I've kind of heard it put this way. One of the reasons why there has to be a new creation, a new earth, is because God is so holy, he can never have a place where there's the presence of sin. It's kind of like one of those clean rooms. You ever seen where they make these computer chips? They have to have it perfectly clean because they don't want any contamination to get in those chips. That's how God's holiness is. There's no blemishes. So it's going to be a new creation. Again, the millennium is transitional. And when we get to the eternal state, it will not be transitional. Just just aside, I used to wonder this as a, as a kid. Are we going to sin again? Is there going to be another choice like Adam and Eve and history happen again? And that won't happen, will it? It will be permanent. Because once you've been justified... You've been justified, your past, your present, and your, your future, right? That, there's not going to be another fall. It will be permanent. So my point is this. You have certain Old Testament prophecies that aren't being filled today in the church age. They're not being fulfilled in the eternal state. So the only time, the only logical place for these things to happen is in Revelation chapter 20, verses 1 through 10. This is one of the other reasons why the kingdom is necessary. Now, there's a fourth reason for the coming kingdom, and it's necessary to fulfill God's purposes for the the city of Jerusalem. And you see, the Bible speaks of a time where Jerusalem is the the leader among the nations. And you can definitely see after our first session today, that is not the case, right? And especially after events since October, Jerusalem is definitely not in control. They're very much trying to survive and do what they need to do as a nation to survive. So the, the millennial kingdom, it's not going to be Rome that's ruling. It's not going to be Washington, D.C. It's not going to be Beijing or something. It's going to be Jerusalem. And as you read through the Old Testament, especially throughout the book of Isaiah and in Zechariah, time and time again, it predicts that this will happen. And let me just give you two references. One is in Isaiah chapter 2, verses 2 through 4. It says, the word of God will go forth from Jerusalem. It's the idea is where the inhabitants of the earth will go up to Jerusalem. They're going to be worshiping there. Another one is in Zechariah, Zechariah chapter 14, verse 17. It says the king will be worshipped in Jerusalem. And in this passage, it's really specific. It talks about the nations are going to go up and worship the king. So if the nations will, um, are going to go up and worship the king... That's going to happen, I think, during the millennium. And what's interesting is if they don't do it, they're going to be punished. Talks about how agriculturally they'll be deprived and the king won't send rain on where they're at. So the question becomes, when are all these prophecies going to happen that you read in Isaiah, you read in Zechariah, you read in other places in the Old Testament, and you have a good place in the New Testament for that. That's Revelation chapter 20. Listen to to verse 9 of Revelation 20. It says, and they came up on the broad plain of the earth and surrounded the camp of the saints and the beloved, what? City. And fire came down from heaven and devoured them. The beloved city is Jerusalem. It's talking about this rebellion by Satan after this thousand year period when he's released for a short short time. And where they show up to come after the king is in the city of Jerusalem. So the question becomes, why is Satan gathering his, um, uh, why is he gathering his armies against that city? Listen to what uh, Dr. Robert Thomas says, and it's really his excellent commentary. He says, at the end of the millennium, that's 
the city will be Satan's prime objective with his rebel army. Because Israel will be the leader again among the nations. Again, the point is with all of this is the millennium represents a time period when these Old Testament promises can be fulfilled. And a specific promise is when Jerusalem will be a leader among the nations. It becomes really the mediator of God's blessing to the rest of the world. It really fulfills what Moses was calling the nation to do in Exodus chapter 19. To be a kingdom of priests. God's representatives on the earth. And that will come to fruition through this, through this last Adam here. Let's go to the fifth reason for the millennium. And this is necessary really for God to complete his resurrection program. Now you might be thinking, what do we mean by resurrection? Well, the easy way to think about resurrection is the opposite of death. When a person dies, the part of them that is designed to live forever separates from their body. That's what happens with Christ in Matthew chapter 27, verse 50. It happened with Stephen in Acts chapter 7, verse 59. That's death. Now, when resurrection happens, again, which is the opposite of death, the part of a person that's designed to live forever, what happens is they reunite with the new body. And that's what we call resurrection. It's the, the getting of this new body. And what the Bible teaches is at the end of time, there's going to be two great resurrections. The first resurrection will be the resurrection unto life for the believer. And the second resurrection is a resurrection unto judgment for the unbeliever. And everyone that's ever lived is going to be resurrected either unto life or they're going to be resurrected unto judgment. There's lots of scriptures here. I, I wrote some of them Dan, down. Daniel 12, 2, John 5, verses 28 and 29, Acts 24, verse 15. Last night we had one of our speakers talk about that in John chapter 5, right? How Christ is the one who will be the judge there. Now, just take the resurrection for an unbeliever, and we'll look at that in a moment here. And I want us to look at the, the focus for the believer. The resurrection for those who put their faith in Christ. And Paul tells us that the resurrection for the believer is going to take place in different phases, and what he does to explain this is he makes an analogy here that the resurrection for various believers, it's tied to this picture of Israel's harvest cycles. Israel would harvest in waves. The first phase would be the first fruits is what it was called. That's the first one. Then you have the general harvest. And then you have what's called the gleanings. And these are all laid out in the Old Testament for us very, very clearly and what Paul says is that in the same way that the resurrection for the believer will take place in phases, you've got the first fruits, which is who? Christ and Christ's resurrection. And that whole chapter there is tied to if Christ rose from the dead, you can have confidence if you put your faith in him that you will be raised from the dead. Then you have the general harvest. It's our resurrection as church-aged believers. And that's going to happen at the point of the rapture where all of us receive a new body. And then the last one is the gleanings, which is the resurrection of those from the Old Testament and those who lived through the tribulation. And that takes place at the beginning of the millennial kingdom. And after all that is complete, we'll have a resurrection of judgment for unbelievers. So the question is, when does that resurrection happen? That happens at the end of the millennial kingdom, Revelation chapter 20, verse 5. And my point in explaining all this is if you don't have Revelation chapter 20 in your Bible, if you don't have a thousand-year reign of Christ, 
it's hard to put all the pieces together for God's resurrection program. When you get into this imagery in 1 Corinthians chapter 15 of these harvests, these phases of the resurrection, and you're trying to make everything sort out and finish, it's actually more difficult to figure all that out than it is just to take the fact that this will happen as I've outlined here with an earthly kingdom. I think as you can see as we're going through all this, again, this kingdom age has big ramifications for how scripture fits together. So the scripture emphasizes the thousand year reign of Christ, number one. Number two, it's a, it's a time period where God vindicates his authority on earth. Third, it's a time period when he fulfills many of these Old Testament prophecies. Fourth, it's a time period when he fulfills his purposes for Jerusalem. Fifth, it's a time period when he completes his resurrection program and just... Two more and then we'll, we'll finish, okay? The last two of these reasons that we have the millennium in our Bible is because they want, God wants to teach us some important lessons for man and for history. And really, they have more to do with teaching us something about who we are than necessarily just about God. He's doing this to give us lessons. And as the author of Proverbs emphasized over and over again, it's better to learn the lesson be first and heed wisdom than to have to experience it, right? And that's really what we can heed as we go through this section here. The sixth reason for the millennium is it's to demonstrate that only Christ's direct rule over fallen creation can give us lasting peace. It's going to take a perfect dictator to have a wonderful place to live. Now, when I talk about fallen creation, I'm talking about, just to be specific, fallen people and fallen angels. Again, in this age that we live, that's what we're made up of, right? We've got the demonic world, we've got Satan, and then we have humans that are in rebellion against God. And one day, Christ will come, he will directly rule, and as he rules here, um, he will rule over creation, both the people and the angels, that's what we see here in Revelation chapter 20, verses 2 and 3. And this rule of Christ's perfect rule will last for over a thousand years. Again, Satan is put in prison, right? He's clearly not put in prison right now. He's going about this earth and wielding lots of influence. He's the father of lies. And you see that all over as you, we live our lives. And so basically what we see here is this lesson that man himself can't bring about lasting Peace. There's only one man that can do that. There's only one man that can direct the government perfectly and lead to lasting peace, and that's Jesus Christ. He's the only one that can bring in the peace that we're looking for. You know, we have so many systems and ologies and philosophies that are always trying to come up with utopia, right? If we could just fix X, Y, and Z, then things will be better. Many people, when I was in college, my undergrad, I had to take several history and government classes. And throughout history, what you see over and over again from the, the French Revolution to all these different movements is if people could just have a job, if they could just have enough to eat, if they could just get their problems fixed, then people wouldn't be so bad, right? Is that necessarily the case? How do you explain people like Bernie Madoff? He actually grew up very wealthy or Martha Stewart. Those are some popular people, and that's white-collar crime, right? They're people that committed crimes. They have everything that's needed, but yet they continue to steal, lie, cheat, and do those type of things. The point is that man's problem ultimately is not his environment. 
Man's problem is his heart. And that really moves into our final point that we're going to look at here. The final reason why we have the millennium. The last purpose for this time period is to demonstrate that man's fundamental problem is not his environment, but ultimately it's his nature. Man is born depraved. Man is born sinful. That's his fundamental problem. Again, that really contradicts many of the philosophies today, doesn't it? If you say in a college class, if you're talking to people and say, I understand that growing up in a bad home in a bad situation can maybe enhance your propensity to sin, but that's not man's ultimate problem, you'll probably get a failing grade, right? You need to go into all the theories of why man does bad things, even though he's not really bad. Even though he's not really, as the scripture says, is sinful. The sentiment of our day is that people are just brought up wrong. Something happened in their past. That's why they do what they do. When in reality, the scripture is clear that we sin because we're sinful. Romans chapter 5 verse 12 makes that clear. Jeremiah 17 9 says, The heart is deceitful more than all else and desperately sick. Who can know it? And Christ famously says in Mark 7 verses 20 through 23, he says, out of men's hearts come evil thoughts, thefts, immorality, greed, and so forth. It's not the outside, but it's the inside. And you see that emphasis all throughout Christ's ministry. You need a new heart. You need to be born again. You need to be born from above. You need to have a new nature. And if you have a new nature, it makes a difference When you've trusted Christ as your Savior, as as your Lord, it makes a total transformation. And that transformation happens from the inside out. You know what always amazes me as you study this time period? Is look at the end of Revelation chapter 20 here. At the very end, you'll have had children who were born into this time period. And all they've ever known is Christ ruling perfectly and justly from Jerusalem. For the world. And after a thousand years, people will have lived, and uh, there will be justice and peace during this time period. And look at what it says that these, you have these tribulation believers, these saints, they walk into the kingdom, they have kids, their kids live for a long time period, and they come out, starting in verse 7 when the thousand years are completed, Satan will be released from his prison, and he will come. Out to deceive the nations which are in the four corners of the earth, Gog and Magog, to gather them together for war. This is what's always amazing. Is it a small remnant? It says the number of them is like the sand of the seashore. So they'll be very externally conforming to King Jesus. They'll be obeying him during those thousand years. But unless their hearts are regenerated, unless they're transformed Their allegiance will be external. It won't be internal. And that's what the Lord really wants. Israel's problem is they need a new heart. Our problem is we need a new what? Heart. And that's what we always need. We need to be made right with our king. And when you think about the nation of Israel, they often wanted to have a king, but they didn't want to have a savior, did they? And the same is for many people today. We have to acknowledge the fact that what we need is a Savior. We have to understand that we are, are spiritually bankrupt. And the only person that can save us from our sins. Yes, he's king. But he's the perfect lamb that died for our sins. And I just want to encourage you as we finish this morning. That 
If you've never ever acknowledged that you're a sinner, you've never put your faith in Jesus Christ to save you from your sins, I'd encourage you to repent, to to turn from your sin, and to do that, to trust him for salvation. Because if you don't, then you will go down, as has already been highlighted last night, you will go down some form of that path of Romans 1, right? You will, throughout your life, go further and further away from the Lord. So why is Revelation chapter 20 in your Bible? There's seven reasons here. Seven reasons. Number one, to Scripture emphasizes. Number two, it represents a time period where God's authority is vindicated. Thirdly, it represents a time period where the Old Testament is fulfilled. Fourth, the purposes for Jerusalem are fulfilled. Fifth, it represents a time period where God finishes his resurrection program. Sixth, it demonstrates that only Christ's rule results in lasting peace. And number seven, it's a time period which demonstrates that man's fundamental problem is his heart. It's not his environment. Let's go to the Lord in prayer, and then Jeff will come on up here. Lord, we thank you for this conference. We thank you for this time where we can think about the future. And for those of us that are in you, it is such an encouragement to think that one day you will come and you will reign from this earth, and there will be lasting peace and justice. We are so thankful for that, and we look forward to that day. And really, apart from you, we could never have that. So Lord, help us realize that lesson. Yes, we are faithful to be salt and light in our day, but help us realize fundamentally that no matter how nice things can be here for a season, for a time, that our neighbors, that our loved ones, that our friends, their biggest problem is they need to be made with Christ, right with Christ. They need his righteousness. So help us to be faithful to share that with them. They won't like it. They may not appreciate us for that, but help us to be faithful to that call. Lord, I pray that you keep everybody safe as they head home today. We thank you for this conference. In Jesus' name, amen.